morning is from Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Morning. Turn with me, if you will, if you have your Bibles with you, to the book of Acts. We're going to be picking up, uh, if you remember, right where we left off in the uh, in our sermon last week. Um, so we're looking at Acts chapter one, verses six through eleven. Um, last week, if you recall, Josh opened up what is the much harder portion of this book. As we start off, um, Luke, who is the author, if you remember, of the book of Acts, recaps his previous letter, which we call the Gospel of Luke, in about two sentences, right here in verses 1 through 5. And then he says, um, essentially, you know, there's coming a baptism with the Holy Spirit. And you guys can look forward to that, right? That's what we talked about last week, and Josh did a great job with that. And hopefully, it rings a bell that Josh talked about um, three things that that the world doesn't pick up uh, from from Scripture and doesn't understand, and they don't see in the Bible that they miss. And the interesting thing is, as we pick up this morning in verse 6, that it's pretty clear that the world's not the only one who doesn't get what the Bible is trying to say, the only one who doesn't get what Jesus is trying to say, because his disciples are also a little bit confused. Um, And if we're honest, sometimes so are we. But we're going to go ahead and dig into that, and we'll dig a little bit deeper. But before we really dig into things, I'm just going to read the whole passage off. Um, So Acts Chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. So, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, into the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took them, took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Join me briefly in prayer. Lord, as we step into your word, we are not unlike your first disciples. We do not understand so much. But you are good, and you have given us a good word by which to know you. And even more amazingly, you have given us a spirit, your spirit within us, that we might know your word and that we might know you intimately. Lord, I pray that you would guide us, that you would give us wisdom, that we might honor you, that we might see your kingdom come. And so I ask that you guide us and direct us, that you humble us this morning, and that your spirit might be the means by which you grow, shape, and even teach us this morning. 
Amen. So the first point that I want to, to highlight for you here in these first two and a half verses is that we have a powerful kingdom, right? Verse six says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Uh, these guys, um, just to make clear to you, this statement, restore the kingdom to Israel, is pretty clearly referring to the political kingdom. If you can recall from the Old Testament, Israel had a long history of being a, a powerful kingdom in the region. They hadn't been for a long time, but you remember guys like King David and his son, King Solomon, and when they ruled, Israel was rich and powerful, and their borders were expanding, and they won all their wars. But at this point, of course, that's not the case. This is during the era of the Roman Empire. And so Israel, the Jews, are a subjected people. But there was a promise from King David's day of a son of David, of a Messiah that was coming that would restore the kingdom of Israel. And the Jews, for, for centuries, had expected this to come as a political deliverance. And here the disciples, as they did all through the book of Luke and all of the other gospels, are expecting Jesus to come in and kick Rome out. And so when they're saying here, will you come to restore the kingdom of Israel? What they're saying is like, hey, so that, that whole death resurrection thing caught me off guard. Was not expecting that. that that's cool. Um, and then you're talking about this spirit coming and baptizing. I'm, I'm game with that. But, but the real question is, so are we kicking out Rome this week? Because I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting this kingdom back. And that's not what Jesus' plan is, clearly. Um, he pulls here what is a really a pretty classic Jesus move because he's faced with the wrong question, right? Your teacher probably told you when you were in school, there's no such thing as a dumb question. And they were lying. There is. And in this case, this is, this is kind of one of them. But Jesus is a kind and patient teacher, and he doesn't say, that's a dumb question, guys. Instead, he kind of answers their question, but kind of doesn't, at least not in the way that they expect. He says, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So he, he kind of circumnavigates the question. Note carefully, he doesn't directly shoot them down. He doesn't say, I won't restore the kingdom of Israel. Instead, he says two things really clearly. The first is that it is the Father's place and his authority to know the timing of such things. And second, that right now, or, or at least very soon, you will be receiving power in the Holy Spirit. Of course, this isn't what the disciples want to hear nor what they expect to hear. <clears throat> and this isn't what they're expecting from their last conversation with Jesus in the flesh. But this much is clear. The disciples' expectations were far too low. Their desire for a political kingdom of Israel was far too small of a desire. I want to step away from, from this conversation and look at another point in church history that is not an Acts. We're going to look for a minute at the medieval church, which was a lot of things, um, and flawed was among them. But I will highlight they had a really strong view of what they would call the kingdom of heaven. This drove everything in their culture. Anytime that there was a king 
or a Lord who ruled over the lands, he did by the power entrusted by God to him, which is an idea that we vaguely hold today, but not nearly as strongly as they did. They believed that the sovereign of the land, the ruler, the king, was divinely appointed over them. And they used this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, so much. But we know that it also led to a little bit of corruption. Some things didn't come out so well. There was a movie made in like 08, I think, with that exact name, The Kingdom of Heaven. And if you have seen it, you'll know what it's about, which is the Crusades, which is not the high point in church history. That's not something that we really celebrate. But what were they trying to do? They were trying to go down to Israel, and they were trying to restore the kingdom to Israel. Because, you know, here Jesus didn't mean right now he's going to restore the kingdom to Israel, but he meant that his church would, right? They would come and they would take this land back and they would make it a Christian land. And there are so many things, so many tragedies that happened in church history because of this view. But again, just like the disciples, the medieval church held this idea of a political kingdom as too small a view of Christ's kingdom. Now, when we came to the States, right, and we, we rebelled against the sovereignly appointed king of England, and we set aside our own government, we instituted another idea. We instituted, right, the separation of church and state. And, and this is a really good thing. But it's not just a good thing for the reason that we learn about in our school textbooks or that our atheists might believe that it avoids corruption. That's, that's good, and it's true, and it's really good that we don't have religious oppression inside of our Constitution. Right, that separation is great, but I would argue that it is perhaps better the other way around. It is better that our church is not tempted with the corruption of political power that our church can focus on the kingdom of heaven rather than on a kingdom of crowns and swords or a kingdom of votes and political maneuvers. It is good because true power isn't found in these things, in constitutions and in armies. What does Jesus say here? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This is power. Power is found in a father who fixes times and seasons and in the spirit who dwells within his people. There's a parable from Matthew that does, I think, a really good job of making this text a little bit clearer. Matthew 13, verses 31 and 32, Jesus tells this parable. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Jesus turns a lot of things upside down. And in this, the paradox is that he finds great power in very, very small things. Not in grand overarching governments, but in you and in me. In 11 tax collectors and fishermen and sinners. That's where the power comes in. But... It's those 11 fishermen and tax collectors 
with the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within them. Because that is where power is found. It is not in the kingdom of Israel as a political state. It's not in the Israeli state, and it's not in the United States on Capitol Hill. It is found instead in the people in whom the Holy Spirit has come. That is, you and me, the church. This is the power of the kingdom of heaven. And in you and me, as meek as we are. And the thing is, we miss this too, right? We're just like the disciples, right? I see the state authorizing the elimination of unborn babies. And I cry out for Jesus to take a physical throne and cast aside this corruption. I see the common man disregarded and consumed in order to fill the pocket of the wealthy and the powerful. And I want to see the wicked laid low and the oppressor crushed. And so often, we are just like the disciples and we say, Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom? And we have the same answer they did. Except the Spirit has already come. He is already in us. The mustard seed has been planted and has multiplied and grown a million fold. And it continues to do so and it will continue until the day that Jesus comes back. Because that is where our true hope is found. Because of that, we can despair not when pendulums of power swing to a new party or when corporate interests seem to crush the working man or even when belligerent dictators invade and crush their innocent neighbors. And instead, we find hope. We find hope in the church, even in what might feel like the littlest things. Find hope in the smile on a child's face or the baptism of a new brother or sister. And we find hope in the gathering weekly and more of a community unlike any other. Now, don't mistake this. We do long for the end of injustice. This is a good thing to cry for. We are right to hope for it, but we are wrong to expect it to happen on our timeline. For we long for hope and peace, and we know that these things will come. But when they come, they're going to come on God's time, and they're going to come far more abundantly than they would if we were in control. Because Jesus' kingdom isn't political, but it is a growing kingdom. That parable of the mustard seed that we looked at just a minute ago, it talks in the end about birds. Birds that come and make a nest in its branches, in branches of the tree. This portion of the parable, I think, is made a little clearer this morning by our passage in verse 8 of Acts chapter 1. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. If you walk out of here this morning wondering, what am I supposed to do? I sat through the sermon and songs and everything. What am I supposed to do after this? I pray that this verse and this verse alone rings through your head. From its inception, this kingdom has been growing to the ends of the earth. This verse here is the thesis of the rest of the book. In these three sections, Jesus is pretty clearly referencing Pentecost when he talks about the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk about that really soon at the start of chapter two of Acts. 
And from there on, we're going to follow the gospel until it spreads all the way to Rome, to the end of the, of the known world, the center uh, of everything uh, that they would know existed then. And it hasn't stopped, right? It didn't stop at Rome because we're sitting here and we're in Ohio, which is a very, very, very long way from Rome. Further still from Jerusalem, right? We are, if you will, at the ends of the earth. And, and further still, when Jesus was saying this, the disciples likely wouldn't have considered people like us as being part of this. Because as far as I know, the vast majority of us at least are not Jews. We're not Jewish people. We're Gentiles. The disciples probably heard this and they, they were thinking, oh, the Jews that are spread amongst all the nations called the diaspora. But Jesus will soon reveal that no, he's including all people to the very ends of the earth. <clears throat> and this is amazing. And it is incredible that this has led to us because now that this gospel has landed to us, we have inherited this same command. We bear the same command that brought the gospel to us to be witnesses, to tell, to share, or bear an account about Jesus near and far. Jimmy just led us in prayer for the Yanaks. They came home and they just got to visit with their family for a couple weeks over Christmas, and those times are awesome and sweet and rare because they have given up everything. All the missionaries that we pray for have done the same. They gave up their home and their family. They gave away their lives and careers to meet this call. And it was not easy. And we, in our very praying for them, have sent them. We have set them on this task. And the thing is, we read the same text. We read the same text that led them to go and give up everything. And it's really hard. It's so hard that I will tell you, this is an impossible task to go. It's too much. We can't do it, if not for the first clause. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. I'll come clean for you, before you guys. This is a really hard thing for me. My wife and I, some of you might know, others might not. We met in, in Asia, doing, answering this very call where we lived in East Asia, seeking to do this. But that doesn't mean that suddenly, you know, I've been a missionary and we're really good at this. This is really, really hard for me. You see, when I walk up to strangers, sometimes I find it really hard to say like, hi, <clears throat> Ben. My name's Ben, because it's really awkward for me. And when I walk up to a group of people that I don't know or I don't know very well, my heart starts doing something really wonky, and my throat is like, hey, breath is optional, right? As it squeezes clothes, I can't speak anymore. I have, on more than one occasion, walked into a room filled with people that I know to varying degrees, looked around, and turned at the threshold and gone home because my heart is palpitating and I can't take it. I can't do this. I can't be a witness to the nations 
if I can't introduce myself? And the thing is, neither can you. You might struggle in the same way that I can. Your fear might be just like mine, or it may be that you're afraid you don't have the words, or that you can't back it up if you start to share. It might be that you're afraid of destroying the relationships you have. But my point is this, is that we don't, and we should not, be Christ's witnesses by our own power. That part's important, right? Be clear, I'm not saying that we should fail to take this commission seriously. We absolutely should, but only with the preceding promise of the Spirit, because that's the only way we can and should be witnesses of Christ. In fact, we should feel this command upon us. That's why it's one of our pillars, mission, built on, on this verse and on the verse that Kim read for us this morning. This is why we pray for our church, local churches, and international missionaries every Sunday. This is why last month we gave $820 as a really small church to Lottie Moon to see the gospel go to the ends of the world. And this is why we're here, why we planted a church on the southwest side, and why we hauled boxes on this freezing Ohio winter morning from storage unit in here, not because it's easy or fun. And this is why we serve in children's ministry every morning. And this is why we seek to weave Jesus into our conversations with our friends and our our family. Why we've chosen to leave our homes, to pursue relationships instead of isolating ourselves in comfort and heat and hobbies. And this is why, before we decide on where to live or how to spend our money or our lives, we pray, Lord, not my will, but yours. And this is why we might consider doing crazy things like moving far away from home or sending away our parents, siblings, and children to foreign lands for years at a time. This is a really hard thing. And so how do we do this? How do we bear witness to Christ through the power of the Spirit? How do we bring the Spirit into play here? I tell you, brothers and sisters, it is in prayer. It is in prayer and fear and trembling. Even when we're terrified, it is through discipline and in community and then through persistency, even when we try and fail, and we try and try and try again, in faith and in hope, that even when we can't do it, the Spirit can. It is in humility, with humble hearts, as we grow in Christ, and it is together that we bear witness to Christ through the power of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, I pray that these things are true of you. And I pray that they are truer daily, weekly, and yearly as we continue to grow into this. Because this command is hard, but it's worth it. And it's worth it because this isn't just a growing kingdom that we're declaring, but it's a kingdom that's coming back. Luke doesn't waste any time after this command as we pick up in verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took, them, took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, 
who is taken up from you into heaven will come again in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the ascension. Um, Jesus has given his command, this great commission, and he ascends. Not, as the disciples had hoped, right? To the throne of Israel, but instead to a heavenly throne at the right hand of God. I want you uh, to appreciate with me for just a moment more how far the disciples were undershooting, hoping for a political throne and not a heavenly one. Now, raising into heaven isn't a unique thing in Scripture, right? We've seen things similar to this before. In 2 Kings, the prophet Elijah, he's carried off into the heavens by a whirlwind. Um, But this one is a little bit different. Um, There's a a phrase here, a cloud took him out of their sight, which sounds like, okay, he's just obscured by a cloud, which is true, but this is a really intentional choice, as we'll continue to expound upon, because clouds— are often used in scripture to indicate God's glory, his grandeur. You might recall in the book of Exodus, when the people of Israel are fleeing the land of Egypt, they're led by a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. And that cloud will later come to descend upon a tent called the tent of meeting that Moses will go into and he will meet with God in this cloud of glory. And it will be so glorious that his face will glow afterward. Right? This, or the kind of, this is the kind of indication that clouds are given there and again and again throughout Scripture. Clouds indicate God's glory, and that is what Jesus is ascending through. Now, these two men here, um, if you haven't caught it, are almost assuredly angels. Generally in Scripture, if you find men appearing out of nowhere, and they seem to have prophetic insight, but no names— unnamed men who have prosthetic insight, and also they tend to do things like be in dazzlingly white robes. They're usually angels. So in this case, these angels are, they show up and they give what seems to be another light rebuff here to the disciples. They say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? What are you still doing here? Um, They're calling back to Jesus' last words. Surely, I don't know how long the disciples were standing here looking into heaven, I know I would be here for a minute if I just saw my, my teacher, who's done a bunch of amazing things, but just lift off and disappear into the heavens. I would stand there looking for a little while wondering, like, so what's next? But the answer is, Jesus already told them what's next. And these men asking this question of them remind them of that. What are you still doing here? Why do you stand looking into heaven? This has to draw the disciples' attentions back to what they were just told. Further still, look at the language that they use here. This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come again in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus just commanded them to be what? Witnesses. People who see things, right? They just saw him go into heaven. They're reminded of this command to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And they're reinforcing this call that Jesus just gave to them which is really cool. But they also include something new that Jesus didn't directly say in this previous statement, though he has said similar things before. Don't overlook the entirety of this verb phrase, right? He will come, he will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Right? We just talked about how the disciples are standing there looking up in awe because this was a glorious ascension through the clouds, 
And in the same way, Jesus is going to come back. I want to look at a couple of passages real quick. There are so many, but we'll just look at two from Matthew 24, verses 30 through 31, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. They'll be on the screen here behind me. So starting in Matthew 24, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And First Thessalonians. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and then those who are alive who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. This is marvelous. Wonder with me. Worship with me at these verses. Jesus ascended on a cloud, and he's coming back on a cloud of glory. He left with commission, go to all people. And when he comes back, he's going to come back with another command, a new commission and a trumpet call that does what? It gathers people from the four winds, from the ends of the earth, brought back together here. He ascended, right, right after a resurrection, his own resurrection. So after a resurrection of one man, and at his return, there will be another resurrection, not of one, but of many. Further still, he ascended once, but the fullness of the saints of his church will join him in the air, not left on a mountaintop looking up, but with him there and forevermore. Is this not a glorious promise of a coming glorious Lord? If the spirit within us gives us power to send ourselves and our loved ones to the end of the earth, does this hope not make it so very worth it? Christ's glory is going to be revealed and not just for a couple of men on a mountain, but for all people to see. This is so good. It makes me shiver a little bit, even just standing up here, thinking about it and speaking about it. But as we wrap up this morning, what are we to do with this? What are we supposed to do with wondering had a glorious return today. And first, I want to encourage you, let yourself wonder. It is a clear command throughout Scripture to worship. And that happens through song, as we just did and as we will continue to do, but it's not restricted to song. Worship happens in our hearts. And it happens right now as we crack open his word and as we wonder and look with hope to his return. The second thing I want you to look at again with me at this commission. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is a hard call, but so very worth it. And so how can we lean into this today? I want to challenge you in two respects. First, how can you obey this now? How can you obey this this week, even today? 
how can you obey this command to go to Jerusalem or to Columbus? And second, how can we make this our mission? Right? Lifelong plans are not built in, a, in today. Do not decide in a moment this morning before you go home and have lunch that you're going to sell everything and move to Asia. If I got home and told my wife over lunch that we're moving, also I gave 10% of our annual income to missionaries, she would be really upset at me for good reason, right? That would be insane. Not a good idea, but that doesn't mean those things are impossible. It's not impossible to live and to give sacrificially for this mission. It just means that those are bad impulse decisions. These are the sorts of things that we can plan towards and pray towards. That we make slow, long-term life decisions toward. Things that we prepare for, even when we're not sure what they're going to look like yet. Things like getting a passport, even when we don't know where we're going to go. Long-term obedience means that you put this verse on the whiteboard when you're trying to decide, what are we going to do with the rest of our lives? Let it be up there in influence how we spend our time and our money, how we set our hopes and how we set our dreams. Obedience takes the form of both everyday, momentary, instantaneous decisions, like whether or not to ignore the fact that our throat is sealing closed and open up our mouths anyways. And it takes the form of long-term plans set in motion months, years in advance. These are both critical to a very hard call. But the good news is, is that we're doing this together as brothers and sisters. And so as we accept this call to be witnesses, the ends of the earth, let us rejoice as it is a call for the sake of a good, powerful, and surely returning king. Join with me, if you will, in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for this command. You are good and gracious in that you don't just give us hard commands. You don't just give us 10 commandments and then let us fail in them, but that you also give us the means by which to complete them. You've given us a Holy Spirit, and I pray that we would rest in him, that we would find hope in him, Lord, that we would abide in him. And Lord, I pray that we would help each other do that. And I pray that as we step into a time of worship through song, worship through, through your supper, that we would rejoice at what it is to partake in you and in your nature and to have you within our hearts. Lord, I thank you for the surety of your return and how good it is. In your holy name, amen.